Computer, initialize Holosuite. And I am so excited and so happy to be back on the podcast. As you know, I took a short break for a few weeks from the Sci-Fi Feminist podcast because um, I had a lot of things to do and I thought I would be less busy by 1 November, but I'm not. But anyway, I promised to start the podcast again from the 1st of November. So here I am uh, starting the podcast again. Um, yes, quite a few things have happened in the meantime. I think one of the, well, a few, uh, very interesting and important releases in science fiction, I think, um, Dune came out recently and I watched it and I was actually going to do today's episode on that. So maybe you can expect an episode on Dune and the female characters in Dune next week. But for this week, um, as you know, Star Trek is very close to my heart and especially Captain Janeway and Star Trek Voyager. And this week, Star Trek Prodigy premiered and for the first time, we saw an animated hologram version of Captain Janeway. So to celebrate the release of Star Trek Prodigy and the return of... I think my favorite captain of all time. <laughs> I decided to do today's episode on Star Trek Prodigy. Maybe not necessarily on Star Trek Prodigy, but on Captain Dan Janeway. It is kind of a dedication uh, episode to her. And also because she is a very important female character. Um, not only in science fiction, not only in Star Trek, but I think for all of popular culture, Captain Janeway really set a standard for female heroism that is still emulated and respected and sought after even in today's representations of action heroines in science fiction. So yes, to my favorite captain ever, <laughs> I dedicate this episode and also to Kate Mulgrew. I got goosebumps when I heard her voice again. Um, and I, I was hoping to see a little bit more of Hologram Janeway in the first episode, but uh, as they always do, she came in right towards the end and I was just like, ah, I, I want to see more of her. <laughs> she said like one line and it was finished and, and I was, I was quite frustrated, but I'm sure we'll see a lot more of her in next week's episode. And, um, when I heard Kate Mulgrew's voice, I kind of felt like I was home. <laughs> I, it's a very strange <laughs> feeling, I think, because I think I've watched all seven seasons of Voyager at least three times now. So Captain Janeway has become a personal, almost like a someone I see as my friend. I know it sounds quite sad <laughs> seeing a fictional character as my friend, but um, she she was there when I had hard times and good times. And especially Kate Mulgrew's voice is so distinct. So I was quite overcome with emotion 
when I heard her voice the first time and I was so happy because it's literally been exactly 20 years since the Final Voyager episode and it's been 20 years since the return of Captain Janeway. I thought we would never see her again in Star Trek, but here she is and um, it's absolutely lovely. So... Yes, without further ado, as usual, um, let me get then into today's episode on Captain Janeway from Star Trek. All right, so if you've listened to the very first episodes of the podcast, you will notice that there have actually been episodes where I discuss Captain Janeway quite extensively. Um, but those episodes were not like a Captain Janeway episode. <laughs> they were episodes on second wave feminism and the action heroines that we saw in sci-fi in the 70s and the 80s. So if you're interested in that, those episodes are quite long and detailed and very cool, in my opinion. <laughs> you can go listen to them. In them, I discuss uh, basically three important female characters in sci-fi, which is Ellen Ripley from Alien, Sarah Connor from Terminator, and of course, Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. But today, I'm going to do kind of a maybe a summary of three episodes, three really earlier episodes into one, and I'm just going to be talking about Captain Janeway. So as you know, Captain Janeway was the first female Star Trek captain, um, maybe not the first female captain, but the first female Star Trek captain to play such a prominent role. Um, she was as the male captains before her were kind of the leads of the series and the leading the ship. Um, she's actually the first female yeah, captain that has her own ship, that um, leads the series, that makes very frequent appearances, that plays a very prominent role in Star Trek Voyager in general. And... Um, so Star Trek Voyager was released towards the, the, the mid nineties. I believe it came out 1995, which is one year after I was born. <laughs> um, it's quite sad that I only discovered Captain Janeway in my twenties. I think if I saw her growing up, uh, I might even have pursued a career in science. You never know, <laughs> but here I am not very scientific at all. Um, Anyway, <laughs> so yes, the 90s was a very strange time for feminism. If you've listened to older episodes on post-feminism and third-wave feminism, this is when we actually started to begin seeing a shift in feminism from second-wave feminism to third-wave feminism to something called post-feminism. So it was a, a transition time for feminism, but Captain Janeway, she's still embodies and she follows the legacy of second wave feminist empowerment. So today I'm going to look at three, how can we call it, schools within second wave feminism and how Captain Janeway embodies the kind of ideals that these schools of feminism put forward or their ideals, ideas of equality. And I'm going to touch a little bit on gender theory too, which is something I haven't done up to now because personally, I don't like talking about gender theory. Um, it becomes very difficult and complicated for me um, because the theory is, is just, is difficult. Um, <laughs> 
especially when I read things like Judith Butler. Um, actually, most of the time, I have no idea what I'm reading. I just pretend to know <laughs> what I'm reading, but actually, I have no idea what I'm reading. These texts tend to be quite heavy, so that's why I avoid them. But there is a very interesting uh, gender theorist called Monique Wittig, and she she wrote some very interesting things. So when I talk about radical feminism a bit later in the episode, I will touch on that so that today's episode is something a little bit new and not just a repetition of what you heard in the previous episodes on second wave feminism. So, yes, second wave feminism, just some background on it. Um... It was here around the 1960s. So for a few years, I think because of world wars and um, many societal uh, things that were taking place uh, uh, towards like the 1910s to the 1950s or so, there wasn't a lot written about feminism, although there was still some feminist activism taking place here and there. Um, feminist theory really started to develop here in the 1950s, 1960s. So a very important text for second wave feminism is Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. And you might definitely have heard me talk about this text before. She wrote something like 950 pages just about women and feminism. And I actually haven't read that whole text. I, I, I kind of read the introduction and the conclusion and... um <laughs> yeah, I think if my PhD examiners uh, hear this, they <laughs> might be a bit shocked um, because it's 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 quite a heavy read um, and it was translated from French. So, yeah, it's not an easy read. But if you are really looking for some seminal reading on feminism and you have the time and you have the stomach to read it, then I highly recommend The Second Sex. She makes some very interesting arguments in there. So that was in Europe and then in America there was the housewife problem. Um, after the war, many women uh, were forced to to work as housewives. Um, they, they joined the labor force during the war, but then after the war, all their husbands came home and then they had to become housewives once more. And um, actually it was a, a problem in America, um, depression among housewives because... Um, yeah, okay, I, I can't say why. I know why Betty Friedan says, but I'm not going to go into why housewives became depressed. But um, so Betty Friedan, then in her uh, text, she wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. And in that book, she identified, I quote, unquote, the problem that has no name, which is what she said housewives experience. So they're feeling depressed, but they, they can't really put their finger on it. They don't know why they were depressed. And then according to Betty Friedan, she said they were depressed because they didn't work. So that text especially advocated for women to have jobs. That was a very important thing for uh the second wave feminists, it became, it became one of their main arguments and one of their main uh, things that they wanted to see in terms of gender equality. So when we look at Captain Janeway, she is absolutely a career woman to the point where she leaves her fiance behind in the Alpha Quadrant and she 
goes on to Voyager and then eventually they get stranded in the Delta Quadrant 75,000 light years away from home, which is theoretically a 75-year journey home. So for Captain Janeway, obviously she did not uh, plan to get stranded and be separated from her fiancé, but um, of course if you go onto a starship, death or separation, long-term separation are definitely... Um, uh, the probability of that is quite high. Um, so we can clearly see that Captain Janeway is absolutely a career woman. She really puts her job or her career as a Starfleet officer ahead of family life. And um, of course, we can't say whether the producers or directors actually read The Feminine Mystique and they were like, no, Captain Janeway, if she's going to be an empowered female character, she needs to have a job. We can't say that maybe they had that in mind. Um, but she having a job or a career of her own, she really reflects the second wave notion of femininity or female empowerment, the idea that women need to have their own jobs. Um, we also see that <laughs> Captain Janeway is obviously not a stereotypical housewife at all. I, I found the scenes quite funny every time she, uh, she and Chakotay have dinner together. I don't think they do that a lot or every time <laughs> Captain Janeway cooks for someone, <laughs> she burns it. Um, she's a really bad cook. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we can assume that, that she's, she's quite bad at other, uh, household tasks too. And of course she never has kids of her own. And, um, it was interesting. I've heard a few interviews of Kate Mulgrew talking about, um, you know, Captain Janeway's lack of romance and then her lack of family, um, not ever pursuing, um, having kids of her own. And Kate Mulgrew said something like, um, you know, that was kind of the, the ultimate sacrifice. You're either a captain of the starship and, um, we can kind of assume you know, implying you're either a career woman like Captain Janeway, where you give everything, um, or you are, you pursue family. But Captain Janeway, according to, uh, Kate Mulgrew, at least, um, yeah, don't quote me on this, but this is what I have gathered from one or two interviews that I have listened on this. Uh, you can correct me, obviously, if I am misquoting Kate Mulgrew here. Um, yeah, she, she felt like, you know, it's either or for Captain Janeway. And we actually see that in, in, I think it is by the third or the fourth episode. Uh, Chakotay asks her, so Voyager has been stranded for some time. And then Chakotay asks her, you know, Captain, would you ever pursue a relationship on the ship, uh, on, on Voyager? And then she says, that's a luxury I cannot afford. As captain, that is a luxury I cannot afford. And I believe those are, are her direct words. So we clearly see she sacrifices family for uh, her captaincy. Then, of course, there are some interesting arguments. And this ties more into cultural feminism, which really started gaining prominence here towards the late 80s and uh, 90s. Um, so just to give a timeline, um, this this uh, argument about women having jobs, that's an early liberal feminist argument. So that is what we what was pr the predominant um, type of feminism here, 1960s, 1970s. 
Then the feminism kind of split into this liberal feminism and radical feminism. So we see much more radical feminist writing and radical feminist activism here around the 70s. And then towards the 80s, we saw cultural feminism starting to appear. And obviously, Captain Janeway appeared after all of these. Um, so I guess she takes a little bit of each each feminism's version of female empowerment. I don't know. Um, but very interesting, cultural feminism actually argues that motherhood is not a bad thing. So you can see that even within second wave feminism, there were some divisions, <laughs> actually to the point where you have two complete opposite arguments. Cultural feminists, and they are categorized as second wave feminists, but I think they're starting to lean more towards th third wave feminism. But they said that actually motherhood should be celebrated. Motherhood is something that empowers women. And unfortunately, it is something that has been institutionalized by patriarchy. That is why it subjugates women. And of course, uh, I'm, this is not my opinion. <laughs> okay. Um, this is not my opinion on motherhood. This is what the early liberal feminists argued. And you can kind of see where they're coming from because that was a time where, um, women would get married very early, like 17, 18 years old, and then have five children by the age of 21 or 22, and then develop depression. Um, because according to early liberal feminists, they're not working. So yeah, um, we need to understand the context in which they're saying this. But um, yes, the cultural feminists said that um, actually motherhood in its original form, <laughs> you know, before patriarchy became a thing, um, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, actually motherhood was celebrated and motherhood was something that empowered women. And I, I tend to kind of uh, agree with this argument There, I have many uh, female figures in my life that are, well, that I consider to be very um, strong and tough women. Um, and they happen to be mother figures for me, um, not necessarily, I mean, I, I only have one biological mother, but I have many women in my life that I consider mother figures and, and they are some of the strongest women I know. And they sometimes also have children of their own. So uh, I, I tend to lead towards the cultural feminist argument. So interesting what, interestingly, what we see, um, Captain Janeway, even though she never has her own biological children, she is really considered to be the mother of her crew. And, um, it, there is one episode in which Q gets involved. And, you know, Q is always up to his mischief. And in this, okay, so, so this comes over a few seasons. Every now and then Q appears and then this kind of thing, um, how can I say, uh, this kind of story, uh, <laughs> continues, uh, progressing. Um, but I think the first time Q appears to Captain Janeway is in an episode called, uh, Q and the Grey. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But Q decides that he wants to have a baby. And Q has decided that Captain Janeway is the ideal mate for him. And obviously, she's absolutely disgusted, and um, Q tries all sorts of romantic gestures to try and get Captain Janeway 
to to fall for him, which don't work. Uh, there's that very funny scene where he snaps his fingers and then the bed is all made up nicely with pink sheets and things and he snaps his fingers and then Captain Janeway is in her night dress and, and she's obviously very offended. Um, I thought that was all very, very funny. I love that episode. And Captain Janeway's response to Q. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, uh, so... Yeah, eventually uh, Captain Janeway convinces Q to mate with one of his own kind, which is another Q. Uh, she's also just called Q. Um, on Star Trek timelines, she's Lady Q. <laughs> so it's a female Q. Not that Qs have gender. Um, apparent, I don't know. <laughs> you know, when you talk about Q, it gets a bit complicated. But anyway, there's a male and a female Q. And then they make another Q. And... Um, at some point later in the series, I think by season six or so, uh, Q asks Captain Janeway to kind of babysit his son <laughs> or take care of his son. And then Captain Janeway tells him, I am no, I'm not a mother. I know nothing about motherhood. You know, get someone else to take care of your son. If you're looking for a mother, I'm not the person. And then Q very interestingly says to her, you are not a mother in any biological sense, but you are certainly the mommy of this crew. That is uh, also, I believe, his direct words. So actually, Captain Janeway is framed as a mother figure, um, but not a, a biological mother. Uh, we would call her more like an adoptive type of mother or more like a, a great mother figure. Maybe not, I mean, you can't say she adopted all of her crew, but she is definitely a mother figure to them. So what I find very interesting is that we see two very opposing strands of second wave feminism, both manifested in Captain Janeway. In terms of liberal feminism, she's the ideal career woman, leaving all prospects of family behind to pursue her career. But then in the process of pursuing her career, she becomes the symbolic mother to her crew, which is something that cultural feminism celebrates. And um, many theorists have argued that, you know, framing Captain Janeway as a mother of her crew kind of takes away her really progressive potential or her really empowering the empowering aspects of her but I tend to disagree I do not feel that she's less empowered because she's framed as a mother uh, some theorists say that that just places her within a stereotypical role of femininity once again um, you know if it was a male captain uh, would he act as the mother of his crew <laughs> I don't know it becomes a bit complicated um, but yeah, so there are various arguments about this, but I tend to lead towards the argument that Captain Janeway is actually empowered by her status as the mother of her crew. Right, so um, now we've kind of covered uh, early liberal feminism and radic uh, cultural feminism too. I think before I move on to radical feminism, what is also important to mention about early liberal feminism is that their argument also tended to lean towards the idea that men and women are exactly the same. So it's a gender sameness argument. They say that except for the most basic biological functions, you know, maybe the fact that women can bear children and men can't uh, biologically, um, except for that, men and women are exactly the same. 
That is their argument. And we see this manifested in these characters too. Uh, first of all, just merely the fact that Captain Janeway is captain of the starship. Um, it's kind of implying, you know, men and women can be captains of starships. And that is absolutely uh, right and true, I think. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting that Captain Janeway, even though she occupies this supposedly very masculine or traditional masculine role, she's framed more in terms of her femininity, in terms of motherhood. But in terms of what she looks like, actually, she leans more towards maybe not a masculine, uh, a masculine look or masculine representation, but definitely more androgynous type of representation. Um, we see that she wears her unisex Starfleet outfit. She is, um, there's very, it's very rare that you actually see her wear outfits that display her whole body. Um, she, she wears this, yeah, you know, the very blocky Starfleet outfit. Attention is never drawn to her body. Also, her hair is rarely ever loose. Uh, we only see her hair down when, um, yeah, well, when Q snaps his fingers. <laughs> um, and when she's, you know, in her, in her quarters or, um, on the, on the planet she gets stranded with, uh, Chakotay in the one episode resolutions. Um, then we see some more emphasis on her feminine, you know, I, I quote feminine, I traditionally feminine features. Um, of course, femininity and masculinity are also constructs. You know, we decided what is masculine and what is feminine. They aren't actually real things. But yeah, again, that's gender theory. Not going to go into that. But um, yeah, so Captain Janeway, in terms of her appearance too, she's framed as more androgynous. And very interestingly, too, is that the longer she's in the Delta Quadrant, the shorter her hair becomes. And hair, of course, is a very traditional signifier of femininity. And hair has a whole history of, uh, you know, connecting hair to femininity and to women. Um, so having long hair makes her more feminine, uh, if we follow that argument. Um making her hair shorter means that she's becoming more masculine. You know, if we look only at hair as an indicator of masculinity or femininity. And hear me out on this. This is very interesting. Since the earth is traditionally associated with women, um, in art history, in philosophy, in most, uh, how can I say, schools of thought, um, it has been kind of assumed or stereotyped that women being able to bear children and give birth are naturally closer to the earth. And that is, of course, a stereotype too. Um, and then men not being able to give birth. Uh, so, of course, that's not a good stereotype because that also implies that women are primitive, more primitive. And then men being associated uh, not with childbirth, but more with thinking and the mind. Um, we have this dichotomy where women equals earth being primitive, men equals culture, science, higher level thinking. So you see how this, this is quite problematic. 
And interestingly, also when we refer to the earth, we call it Mother Earth. Okay, so women and especially motherhood is so closely linked to the earth. And we see this in all spheres of everything, not only pop culture, um, in everything. This, this has been kind of, yeah, I mean, just the mere fact that we call the earth Mother Earth just says enough. Um, so my argument would be Captain Janeway, the longer she is away from Earth, <laughs> which is the realm traditionally associated with femininity, and the longer she is in space, the realm associated with masculinity, science, culture, she becomes more masculine. Okay, I don't know if that's a stretch, but... Uh, for me, that, that, that kind of makes sense <laughs> to deduct it like that. And this is not only something I came up with. This is something that some theorists have also noted about Captain Janeway. Another interesting thing they noted is that where most male captains travel outward into space, Captain Janeway travels inward back home. That is her main journey, is the journey home, the journey back to Mother Earth. So... Yes, some interesting arguments there. And um, Captain Janeway's androgyny becomes even more apparent when Seven of Nine joins the crew. And Seven of Nine is obviously very, very feminine and quite sexualized too. A very sexy Borg. <laughs> um, when she is placed next to Captain Janeway, Captain Janeway looks kind of uh, tomboyish. <laughs> she looks kind of masculine. Um, she... She doesn't look like a very feminine Starfleet captain, um, which I find very interesting. And this relates once again to that early liberal feminist idea that women need to be the same as men in terms of appearance, in terms of dress, in terms of knowledge. Uh, you know, we see uh, Captain Janeway is a very good science officer too, um, I always referred, well, I don't know if I've mentioned this meme before, but I found it so funny because um, <laughs> it literally describes Captain Janeway. Um, you know, there is the meme of the Green Goblin in Spider-Man, like the old Spider-Man movies. There's the meme. And um, he says something like, I'm something of a scientist myself. <laughs> and... Um, there's this meme that says the crew, uh, no, Captain Janeway, every time the crew mentions science, and then it's the picture of him. I'm something of a scientist myself, you know, <laughs> Captain Janeway, every time. Because she's a celebrate, celebrated scientist. She's as good a scientist as any male character. So, um, yes, as you can see, uh, definitely she believes, or the way she's represented, it is supposed to show that you know, men and women are exactly the same, or they can be exactly as good as, well, men, uh, women can be as good as the things men's, men are at, uh, as good as men, at the things that men are at. Yeah, okay, a little tongue twister there. Yes, so um, that is Captain Janeway then, in terms of early liberal feminism and cultural feminism. Now, radical feminism. Now, this gets quite interesting and quite cool. And I think this is by far the most fascinating uh, part about Captain Janeway and something that has intrigued me for 
quite some time. And I don't know why I became so obsessed and intrigued with this. Um, maybe just because I'm uh, a sad person. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's basically uh, her relationship with Seven of Nine. Uh, this thing has bothered me and intrigued me for a long time. Um, so basically, radical feminism, uh, as as it suggests, the name suggests, it became a bit more radical. So one of the seminal texts for radical feminism is Shulamith Firestone's uh, the Dialectic of Sex. That is the book she wrote. And in that book, she makes some very interesting suggestions. Um, and some of them are too radical. She, well, in my opinion, at least, um, at some point she mentions um, one of her things is sexual freedom. Um, okay, I understand sexual freedom, but she extends it to the degree where she, she suggests that actually children and parents can also have sexual relations. Now, uh, I don't know if I read it wrong, because when I read it, I was like, what? Did she really just say that? Um, maybe I I haven't read the book recently enough. Uh, maybe I read it wrong. But from what I remember, she mentioned something like that. And uh, I remember it because I was a bit shocked. <laughs> um, I guess in the context of the 1970s, um, an argument like that we can understand uh, why she would mention such radical things because maybe some really radical change was needed. But for me, some of the suggestions she makes in that book are a bit too much. Um, but anyway, uh, apart from that, um, she then also advocates, of course, um, <clears throat> uh, same-sex uh, relationships uh, should be uh, allowed. And of course, during that time, that was quite taboo. Um, that's not now. It's it's widely accepted. And that's why I love Star Trek Discovery so much, because it does very well in terms of representing different genders, sexualities, races, um, cultures, all sorts of things. Um but, uh, yeah, I'm not here to talk about Star Trek Discovery today. But, um, yeah, she makes a few of these suggestions. And then there was another theorist that also wrote along that time. And she was writing more um, in terms of gender theory. But she especially saw uh, lesbianism or, yeah, lesbians as the ultimate empowered subjects. Actually, um <laughs> Okay, so, so I'm gonna lay out her argument for you, and, um, I think it's, it's quite interesting. Um, I, I don't completely ascribe to this argument. I think it's a, it's, I don't see the logic in her argument. She makes it sound like it's a logical deduction that she makes, but, um, for me, um, I don't agree with this. But anyway, let me tell you what she said. So this is Monique Wittig. I forgot, actually, um, she wrote two papers. I forgot the names of the papers. Um, you can message me on social media if you, if you want the names of the papers and I'll find it for you. But she wrote two papers about lesbianism, especially. Now she says that lesbians and nuns are the ultimate empowered, uh, female figures. Um, what do lesbians and nuns have in common? She says they are not defined in terms of their relation to men. Okay, so she says that 
any woman that is defined in relation to men, especially in terms of romance, um, so heterosexual heterosexual relationships, um, cannot be an empowered woman um, because at the end of the day, you are defined in relation to the man. Now, of course, it's not like this in all cases. That's why I, I don't completely ascribe to her argument um, because it's a bit extreme. It's radical. Um, yes. Uh, so, so yes, she says, um, yeah, nuns and lesbians, um, they're empowered because they're not defined in relation to men. Okay, and then she takes it one step further. And this is where it gets quite interesting and quite wacky, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, I, I'm sorry if you... Uh, if you are a big fan of her theory, um, this is just really my opinion. Um, I don't, I don't agree with this. Um, she says that women, um, the whole idea of a woman, uh, woman, being a woman means that you are defined in relation to man. That's why we also see, um, we have the original word man and then woman prefix woo and man. Okay, so that's her kind of argument. Um, woman is only a woman. You are only a woman, considered a woman, if you are defined in relation to a man. So she says, following this argument, then a lesbian is not a woman. <laughs> okay, and this is where she lost me. <laughs> um, you can read up more on that. I'm not going to go too much into that, but... I found it very interesting. Uh, I was just like quite take like when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, I didn't didn't see that one coming. Uh, it's quite an interesting argument, and uh, my supervisor too. When when she read my chapter on that, she was like, oh, okay, this is uh, an interesting argument. Wow. Um, yeah, that that is Monique Wittig, and that is what she believed, and um. I think a lot of radical feminist theory, um, it is kind of radical like this. And, um, yes, like I say, you know, it might have been necessary at that time, but I don't, I don't always ascribe to all of that. Of course, radical feminist activism too was a little bit more, um, intense. Um, they would, uh, protest at the Miss America pageants. That was one of the, the big protests. Um, there was one protest where they, uh, they, they took a woman's body, like a, a picture or a poster of a woman's body, and they kind of divided it like you would divide the, the, the cuts of meat on a cow, kind of suggesting women are just objects, you know, um, all of those types of activisms. You can also read up on that. Some interesting activism by the radical feminists. Um, but they very much believed that, um, you know, lesbianism is the answer to women's liberation. And um, I guess that's unfortunately too why a lot of fe feminists are stereotyped as um, being lesbians, which is not always the case. Um, yes, so, so that is radical feminism. So why am I mentioning all of this? Well, <laughs> like I said, Janeway and Seven of Nine, there is this very interesting relationship between the two. And I had the privilege of meeting Kate Mulgrew online during lockdown last year. Um, she had those cocktails with Kate and I, I sent an email and, and I was actually, I, I had the privilege to meet her uh, on Zoom and it was on my birthday. So it was just such a, a great day for me, um, especially because, you know, Captain Janeway has been my my 
like constant companion, um, especially during 2019 when I had a bit of a, a difficult time in my life. Um, so being able to meet Kate Mulgrew online, it was very special for me because I, I felt like I was meeting the captain. Um, cause if you, if you've seen Kate Mulgrew or met her, um, it's amazing how so much of her f f kind of infiltrated into Captain Janeway, her mannerisms, of course, her voice, her, her mentality. Um, she's got a very fierce and strong mentality like Captain Janeway. Um, and I was always wondering to what point did Captain Janeway become her? You know, where, where do you separate the two? Um, but anyway, I was quite moved and I was very happy to meet her because it felt like I was talking to the captain. Uh, it was a very special meeting for me. Um, anyway, so I, uh, we got to ask her one question. So my question to her was, um, was Captain Janeway and Seven of Nine, were they ever in love? Um, or was Captain Janeway, especially, was she in love with Seven of Nine? Because there's some very obvious tensions between the two characters. Well, well, me and millions of other fans have picked it up. And actually, I didn't pick it up. My mom picked it up. I was like, oh, cute. You know, they're sitting romantically next to a fireplace, uh, talking very softly and nicely to each other. Oh, what nice, you know, captain, um, captain crewman relationship. And then my mom, uh, she was listening to me, uh, watching Voyager, you know, I'm just sitting watching Voyager. And then she was just like, she didn't even see what was happening on the scene. And then she was like, Oh, are they, are those two together? Are they in love? And I was like, Psh, no, they're not, you know, I mean, look at it. And then when I looked at it, I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Interesting. And then since then, I, I, whenever I watch uh, Captain Janeway and Seven together, I'm like, oh, we know they're going to kiss because <laughs> it looks like they're just about to kiss every time and then they don't. Um, and then, of course, at the end, Seven is paired up with Chakotay, which didn't make sense for me. Um, but anyway, we have this very interesting relationship between the two and when I asked Kate, Kate Mulgrew about it she said no absolutely not there was never any romantic intentions between the two um Janeway and Seven had a mother-daughter relationship perhaps and maybe a mentor-mentee relationship and they were quite competitive too but there was never any romantic relationship and I thought to myself, have you ever watched Voyager? <laughs> I mean, Captain, really, have you ever seen Voyager? Because I clearly, there is something. Um, but then, um, yeah, so anyway, that was her answer. And I was hoping for a different answer. But she said there was never any romance between them. And I definitely think... I don't think that the showrunners uh, planned for that. I know there there was plans to make Seven bisexual, but then um, was it Paramount at that time rejected the idea? Um, so they're both uh, heterosexual. Um, what's interesting is Captain Janeway, obviously, after her fiancé breaks up with her in season four, she stays alone. Um, and maybe that's why it can be interpreted that way, because that's also when Seven of Nine comes on to the to the ship. And I think, except for Chakotay, with whom she dismisses a romantic relationship in season one already, um, her only other logical partner seems to be Seven of Nine. Um, so yes, there's lots of speculation on 
you know why <laughs> why it happened like that but there does um seem some romantic seem to be some romantic tension between them so i would argue then if we see captain janeway as the ideal second wave feminist in terms of radical feminism too which sees lesbianism as women's empowerment captain janeway kind of fits that description too obviously it's not canon and very interestingly, when we watch Star Trek Picard, actually they made it canon that Seven is at least bisexual. Um, there's some very interesting things happening here. Um, I guess deep down, I just want them to be together and live happily ever after. I don't know if that's ever going to happen in Star Trek. Um, but yes, uh, in terms of second wave feminist empowerment, then Captain Janeway, uh, yeah, would be considered a radical a feminist in 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 the sense that she could be read as a queer character especially after seven of nine comes onto the ship so yes those are the main aspects about captain jane when make what you know how uh, she embodies ideal second wave feminist empowerment I'm very interested to see what they're going to do with Hologram Janeway. Of course, the show is for kids, so there might not be any <laughs> romantic tensions <laughs> between her and the sexy Borg <laughs> uh, anytime soon on Star Trek Prodigy. Um, I heard Chakotay will be back somehow. Uh, I'm not sure how. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited to see what they do with her on Star Trek Prodigy. Of course, this is the hologram version of Captain Janeway. On my YouTube channel, someone commented that it would be interesting to see if Hologram Janeway fo follows the same trajectory as Voyager's Doctor, which is, of course, also a hologram that kind of becomes sentient and self-aware, um, a hologram that kind of becomes a human being in every sense of the word, except for him actually being like a corporeal being. Um so I wonder, you know, if uh, Hologram Janeway might become sentient and might have a character development of her own. I don't know. We'll have to see about that. But yes, um, looking forward to seeing the rest of Star Trek Prodigy. And um, I can't believe this episode is already 45 minutes. I was planning on doing a 25-minute episode, but... I guess I get too excited when I chat about Ch Captain Janeway. Um, yes, but that is the take on Captain Janeway. So that was a, a small tribute to her and to Kate Mulgrew. And yes, like I keep saying, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see what they're going to do to her for the rest of Star Trek Prodigy. All right, everyone, uh, just a reminder, I have a YouTube channel. Um, I post some extra content there too, not only um, Star Trek related things, but uh, other things too. And of course, you can listen to the podcast on there too. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. I would really appreciate it. I'm also on Patreon. Uh, I would really appreciate even um, small support. Um, you can get some cool perks if you go for the higher tiers on Patreon. So if you want to. And then, of course, I also sell a few t-shirts. I recently made a nice 7 of 9 one, um, which is a drawing I made of her um, that I put on the t-shirt. It's available in my spring store. So head over there and have a look. It feels so good to be back. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I can't wait for the next few episodes. Please uh, interact with me on social media. I'd love to hear your opinions and... Um, 
everything on these discussions. So yes, thank you for listening, everyone. Live long and prosper. Enjoy the rest of Star Trek Prodigy and Star Trek Discovery in three weeks time. Uh, enjoy all the wonderful track that we get to see these days too. All right, everyone. Thank you very much. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Live long and prosper. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Yeah, so we cut to night time. Harry sneaks out of the bed and starts looking up Voyager with his security codes, etc. Um, again, should be in underwear, but... Computer, show me Tom Paris. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> show me his location right now. Oh, he's 450 meters away. <laughs> hey. Oh my gosh, it was Grongle. <laughs> he's like, I have to go to a hookup. Olivia, I have to go to Bear. I have to, he found, he found him on, on Harry, Space on Star Trek Grinder. Space and he's like, it's Space Grinder. <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Beyond Farpoint, a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. And Picard's the other character trying to solve the mystery, so he leaves for that reason alone. It could be, and it could really be any character, any one of of the main cast members could have gone with Data and been there with Data several days later, trying to solve what happened to the Enterprise. It's it, it it's very very much a kind of a, a plot reason and nothing more. I think. Yeah, um, I kind of wish Data had stayed on the ship actually, because I would like to have seen him regress to a pocket calculator. <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.